All right, everyone. I would like to welcome you to the Catching Foxes Christmas Spectacular. Have yourself a hairy little Christmas. Can we talk about something really, really quick here? Let's start it off. Let's hear. All right. So I think Amy Grant. I had a good. Uh, I had a good conversation with uh, our buddy of, of the show. Um, um, Nathaniel Minto, who we had had on. Sorry, I mean Nathaniel. I had a, I had a great chat with good friend of the show, Nathaniel, and he's when we were talking about Amy Grant's first Christmas album. Do you know which album I am talking about? No. So it's her. I never listened to Amy Grant. Are, are you other than that one song that was like a pop hit? What is wrong with you? Well, number one, I was into gangster rap. And uh, hard metal. Like, that's all I listened Your to. Your parents didn't grunge. like Amy Grant growing up? Hey, look at topic number three. Yes, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, well, we'll just talk about this later then. Okay. So all I'm saying is that Amy Grant has the perfect... So he compared her uh, her first album, Christmas album. He says it's like the Abbey Road of Christmas albums. I kind of agree. Okay. So uh, we're going to... That's awesome. Wait, what? do you know what it's called? It's what? The album? Yeah, I think it's um, a Christmas album or something like that. It's just okay. it's 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 insane how catchy every song is, and the diversity of the songs on there. It's kind of crazy, cool. and it's like she has a song called Emmanuel, which is like a straight up '80s pop praise and worship song. I mean, it's powerful and awesome, and just in. Every way possible. And then she ends with like this beautiful orchestral um, piece that then goes into Angels We Have Heard on High at the very last um, song. Nice. And all, and like a whole bunch of the songs kind of like um, bleed into the other ones. And it's, it's just, each song is awesome. And it's kind of amazing how they're all in one on um, a Christmas album, but it also um, fits as a cohesive whole. It's really cool. My favorite Christmas album is a playlist I made in 2015 from songs that I bought on iTunes that is not necessarily the same thing as Apple Music. <laughs> called Songs no, I Bought the... on iTunes. Glad this really paid, paid off. <laughs> but the whole problem is literally for the last five years, I'm like, set it up. Bing Crosby's welcoming us to, uh, welcoming us to Christmas right now. Play. And then it like skips to like the third song. And I'm like, what? And I go to find out uh, half my songs because I'm an old man and I like all the old stuff. Well, I don't like all the old stuff, but I like a lot of the old stuff. Uh, half of them are no longer licensed. Oh, oh, look <laughs> at that. How the streaming world has screwed us over. Apple didn't sign X, Y, and Z artists. And so, you know, for another mm -hmm. year contractor. Yeah. Oh, I think so it's. I think that's slowly going to become a thing. We're going to see more hard it's like media. like Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Netflix. We're going to be like, oh, did uh, uh, all of The Office is going to leave the next Netflix in 2022. We're going to be like, oh, no, all of Skillet is going to leave Apple Music yeah, that'd be fine. in 2021. That'd be I cannot believe. Not, not to my kids. Do you want to know how die. angry I am that Skillet is a 90s I'm Christian rock band that is still around? <laughs> Even though there's an amazing renaissance going on right now within I'm Christian rock music. Note to self. <laughs> going to change one topic. <laughs> so Luke, why don't you tell the good people what uh what's going on with the topics tonight? Uh hold on just a second. 
Okay, well, you know, folks, we always go to our beautiful patrons over on patreon.com slash CF. You should head on over there and join us. And we ask them periodically, what are your 10-minute topics? That's the only place where we source this information, folks, because those are the people that pay the bills, but also they're the most interesting people on the face of the earth. They are great. They're wonderful. We have the best patrons. They're wonderful. The best supporters. Wonderful people. Uh, yeah, we, we don't need a million friends. They do. Just 365 to 400. Yeah, we would prefer if we could get to 500 friends. That would be great. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> be but we're cool. We're cool now. We're good. No, but we're good. Uh, we always ask them for 10-minute topics. So we, Luke will send out typically an email seven minutes before the show starts. <laughs> oh, crap. We don't know what we're going to talk about. The, this is the way. This is the way. This is the way. And, uh, but today Luke said, you know, it's the end of the year. It's Christmas. We've had, like, craziness happen. What if we did whatever the F we want topics? And he laid down some very uh, some very specific rules that I loved. Luke, why don't you tell the good folks what they All right. I love these rules. So I think they're great. We're each going to have five minutes to uh, bring up each topic. We each will um, have four of them. Within that five-minute span, the other um, co-host has to ask one um, question about that um, topic and have, and have their question answered. So it's not going to be just like here's a f- here's a, a five minute monologue about like Luke talking yeah. about a U.S. Um, soccer. <laughs> Guess what he's going to talk about first. Um, <laughs> so it'll still have the it'll still have it'll still have the discussion piece, but it's not going to be this like you know it won't be a catching foxes monologue as we are wont to do. Righto, righto, and I think this is funny. So I know what the uh, things are, but all I know is the title. That's all I got. Mm-hmm. I just got a title. I don't know what Luke's going to go. But, Luke, right now, uh, right on my desk, I have an iPhone open to the timer app, five-minute countdown. What are you doing to ensure uh, legalistic stability Same throughout thing. the duration? Same okay. thing. And if we go, like, a little bit over, it's fine, but this isn't going to be, like, our 10-minute our ten minute topics where we go a lot <laughs> over. As our buddy Brian Kelsch said, you know, some of your topics are 25 minutes. Some of your topics are a comment, and then you move on. So in the end, they average to 10 minutes. <laughs> well played, Brian. Well played. Sometimes it's like, why would you ask that, nerd? All right, anyways. <laughs> then it's like, wait, I'm the nerd. All right. Do you want to start first, or do you want um, do you want? No, I think first? you should. I mean, you're, you're the one that you created the right. game. You're the Willy Wonka to my chocolate factory. And that was a poop joke. Five Four, three, two, one, go. All right. I want to talk about how excited I am about the U.S. men's on the national team. Whoa. They have the potential to be really, really good. There are two. There are two um, main reasons for this. One that is pretty. It's like you know, p- pretty obvious. They have a ton of talent um, right now. They have like eight guys playing in th- in the Champions League right now, which is all the best teams. Out in like, I'm like, I'm Europe playing some competition every year. When like, I can remember five years ago, we didn't, we hardly had any Americans on there. In fact, I think the one guy we had was actually born like, it was actually born in like Germany, but his dad was in the army, and so he played on the United States because he wasn't good enough to play on the German team. Now he loved the U.S., but but anyways, and then two, this is why I'm really pumped. There's this guy that I follow. His name is um, his name is um, Joseph Lowry, and he uh, does these short like videos, and he was explaining about how like what the U.S. is doing right now is they have this um, tactical approach where they want to 
They want to possess the ball. But that, but like when you really have possession, that's good. But what's more important is what you do with what you do with possession. And what they're doing on with possession right now is their plan is to really drive the ball down the field and put it in between the seams on the right or on the left side. So that's the part of the field where you. So you know, you know how like on the defensive part, you probably have, you usually when when the when the other team is. On defense, they'll have around uh, they'll have around four guys on their on the defensive line. They're trying to get the ball in between the guy on the end and one and, and one guy in the middle on both sides. So that like space in between those two guys, and they do it by by how they pass and and like you know how they run to pull guys out, which then really really which then opens up that space. And what's awesome about that is this is the first time since I've been watching this team in depth that they're creating opportunities to attack. They're creating the attack as opposed to being a counterattacking team, which is when they would always um, react to what the other team would do, and then they would just attack once they got the ball back and just go, go, go. They're now creating opportunities. That's gigantic. And two other things that are very important to the two the international game. One is that the, all these guys are incredibly tight. That's actually really important. And two is I've heard among multiple guys talk about how they've been so impressed with how the coaches are like running things because you only have a small amount of time when you are with your national team. And so the fact that these, um, the fact that, like um, that this staff is able to get is able to get these guys to do this stuff as fast as they are is really really excited okay so my one question is are we talking about soccer yes yes no i'm just oh, kidding i'm sorry. just kidding i'm just kidding <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well I, I thought only little boys with knee-high socks played that game um no so who make what would 30 say, million dollars a year after taxes how dare they what would you say wh- like why are they just now like why like what you're saying just sounds like soccer to me why is this what caused this shift that is making you so giddy. Why didn't they do it earlier? Because we have ne- – so it, it sounds very, very easy to do that, but it's actually incredibly hard. We've had very good athletes. We've had very good – I mean, our best athletes play um, soccer. I'm, real, I'm sorry to, to you know, tug on this, but, like, they're as good as an athlete as someone like an Aaron Rodgers or anyone in the NBA. They're, they're phenomenal athletes. And that's what we have relied upon because they don't really have the technical um, background that other countries have where you learn how to do things um, like w- w- with your foot or, or like with your body on like how you play the game. We don't have the technical um, culture here and we don't have the tactical acumen either because by the, like so like these so like guys in you know, like other um, countries, they they are just all around this stuff all the time from the age of five. And so by the time that they're, you know, the time that they're like 18, they should be ready to play on almost any team in the world if they're good. And um, our guys aren't like because they don't have the tact. I mean, like, you know, they, they go into – like we had guys who were coming out, like, out of college still up until, a couple, up until a couple of years ago. So we've never really had people who have grown up, especially as young kids, being so immersed in – in the game to be as good as they are and to have an and have a high IQ to have a high soccer IQ. So you're saying is the US men's team has been missing just child labor like Ronaldo, like taken away from your family, 
sent away. <laughs> I mean, I th- right? Isn't that what happened? I to think, them? Yeah, I think he's an extreme. Ex- I mean, it's very, it's very Spartan esque. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's, um, kind of, but not exactly. <laughs> so, like when these guys go to go to Europe, actually. A lot of them can't. We we have had a couple guys who have, but the bulk of guys they're actually at one of the MLS uh, club teams academies, and that's relatively close to their hometown mm. where they're from. But we have had guys who've gone out to Europe. That's what uh, that's what Christian Pulisic did. Uh, he was like sixteen when he went, but he went because his parents. Uh, he has a he was able to get a. Croatian passport, so he was able to go out to Germany, and his dad went with him. Mm, so there you go. Yeah, there you go. Very excited, very excited. We are creating an attack that's never happened before. We always react. Nice. Yeah, I'm actually of all the things you wrote, I am more excited about your second thing. But we're going to save that after Fine. my first. Yeah, go, thing. go. All right, five minute topic. Here we go. Setting the start, pushing the start button. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is it preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, I started going to therapy probably about maybe four months ago, maybe three months ago. And I just kind of realized that healing is something that the Lord wants us to receive. But healing is always an invitation from God. Quite often, he asks people to, to you know take a step out. We have to take action. And a great way to do that is through a group called BetterHelp. BetterHelp can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime, and I'm going to send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and I'm a thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule a weekly video or phone obsession so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Those are weird, as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so that they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel like you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is indeed available. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, wants you to start living a happier life today. You can go to betterhelp.com slash reviews and read some of the testimonials that are posted daily. So this is what we're going to do. We have a special offer for podcast listeners. You get 10% off your first month at betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash foxes. You go to slash foxes and you will get 10% off your first month. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional counselor. BetterHelp.com slash foxes. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. Nothing has created more hobbies in my life than YouTube, both for good and for ill. (laughs) (laughs) holy crap man i start watching a youtube video oh this is funny i'm gonna click this then i watch it and then there's like seven other videos that are just like it all of a sudden i'm enmeshed in a language a culture uh i i watch the other youtubers that they're watching and now i'm interested i'm not just interested i'm talking shop with people who do whatever hobby it is right so comically this is woodworking i'm gonna tell you something I built one thing, I built two things right out the gate when I was woodworking. The first one was a table that I was just practicing screwing two by fours in together with this thing called a, uh, oh, I can't even, Craig Jig. 
and it's to make uh, putting screws in diagonally into wood. And I was just screw- screwing. I was just making square things. And I said, oh, this is funny. This looks like it could support a tabletop. I put a tabletop on it, and then I put four legs on that, and I go, oh, look, I made a table. How stupid is this? Well, then I chopped the legs in half, and I put a brace on there, and the the table is now my table saw table because nice and low to the ground. Luke, you've used my table saw on the table saw table. Did not die. Since the, the day I was on, you did not die. You were a pro. But uh, so it started with things like, like I mean, everyone on the show knows, uh, everyone who listens to the show and on the show knows about woodworking as my thing. Well, uh, I have this stupid piece of wood furniture that's so stupid. It's so stupid. It is a weird, it's two leftover plywood pieces that I glued together, screwed onto four four by fours. I was trying to do a mortise and tenon joint. I did not do it well. It is ugly. It is hideous. And then I found four casters, four wheels, and I screwed them on the bottom. Luke, it is the most versatile and important piece of furniture I have discovered that I have in my house. It's a tabletop i can take anywhere i can put anything on it my girls do their math homework on it i have a power strip that i screwed into the side because it's wood it's not metal right and it has become so damn handy so that is one of the things that i've discovered about youtube hobbies is you think you like slip into this world it is easy to slip into a world where you hear people like at first the lango like what the heck is a mortise and tenon joint what are dogs what uh, you know all these different terms and stuff and then all of a sudden i find that i'm watch i've never built the thing out of wood and now i'm critiquing other woodworkers and i've never done it and now i'm watching the detail geek and he's uh and i, I hear you watch an episode um yeah, yeah. and he's de- he's detailing cars and i'm like why is this a thing for me well now i i'm subscribed to four different detailing oh, channels gosh. <laughs> And it's so funny, though, and I mentioned this on the show. Someone else sent to me, he goes, hey, I just bought the scrub brushes. And I go, did you get the white or the yellow? The yellow's for those really stubborn stains. <laughs> and we laughed and we laughed. Okay, so, right, so this is my life. I'm becoming a, like, whatever the algorithm tells me. I have, like, I have, I have two questions for, uh, for you, and, they're, they're sh- and then they should be, I'm going to relatively brief. Okay, one, if you were to say the amount, like, percentage wise how many so when you look at the woodworking stuff that's very practical but yeah. compared to everything else that you get obsessed with how much stuff have you um watched on there or that you are currently obsessed with that's actually very impractical and you really do use it in your everyday life okay so the detailing thing has become a uh, a thing that I enjoy, like my kids and my wife will watch it, it is and will comment soothing. on it, and they then go out, and we have cleaned our cars. I'm telling you, this sounds stupid, but my kids have kept the minivan cleaner once they see what terrible people do to minivans. Mm-hmm. And they're some of the funniest and most disgusting videos in the Detail Geek. But other than that, no, it has no relevance for my life. I love technology podcasts. I love that. It is my sports. You called yeah, me on it. It is. It is absolutely my sports and I love hearing this, and I love I'm, – I'm totally into the P- – I want to build my own gaming PC. Oh, but then gosh. Apple came out with the M1, and I've listened – I've watched every critique, every examination, every real world. And I'm just like, okay, well, I'm not I'm not, gonna, I'm not in the market to buy a new computer. Just bought a $3,300 Apple, you know, 2019 beefy Mac, MacBook Pro 16-inch. So I'm not in the market. So it's, it is – in that regard, it's a time suck. But, you know, I encourage Father David to go out and get a new M1 MacBook Pro, and he ended up buying it. 
and I felt secure in what I was recommending it for. So there, there's little, there's little application other than the finance stuff. There's little application. So how much last, last, last one? And it's fine if yeah. we go a little yeah, yeah. bit over here. How much do you think you've spent as a whole from stuff that? How much stuff have you bought from things that that were d- directly inspired by or for stuff you've watched on YouTube? Uh, like put a dollar how much amount. Have I? That, and, the, and that's like, you know, stuff that's actually, that can be stuff that's very stupid or stuff that's very, very helpful. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, so, shit. Like, okay. I want okay. real numbers okay. here. Real, yeah, okay. real numbers. So, woodworking, I've probably dropped $1,200. That's Just it? Just woodworking stuff. Well, once you buy the tools, this is the great thing about things like woodworking. Is you buy a physical good in the universe, it doesn't magically disappear just because you're using it. So I, my table saw here, you know, I got my, you know, I got all my tools, right? I teach my kids how to use them. It's fun. I don't know how to use them, but I teach my kids how to use them. <laughs> um, but the, some fingers. of the dumber stuff, some of the dumber stuff, I, uh, I have a key light, which YouTube gamers use when they're live streaming their games on Twitch and such i bought it because i thought oh i'm doing all these zoom calls i'll have a wonderful key light oh it saturates my stupid usb camera it can't handle it so it's it's like 90 percent crap uh i have it on the lowest power setting because anything more than that i literally sweat it's okay how much money um, have, have you spent as a whole i probably would up. say uh add it all up i would probably say in the last year and a half because that's what woodworking was about a year and a half ago I would say three grand, maybe thirty five hundred. Okay. okay, that's not that's. I thought it was going to be worse. That's not too bad. This is the same guy who spent hundreds of dollars on Clash of Clans, and I want <laughs> Shannon to know this. Yes, and for the record, never watch a single YouTube video on that. So that was my mistake. <laughs> well, all right, I'm done. good. I'm okay. good. All right, <laughs> are we ready? Here's my number so. two. I'm so excited. I am too. Jurassic Park might be a better movie under a different director. Mm. So, Jurassic Park, directed by the by the greatest director of all time, Steven Steven Spielberg, one of his best films. Um, it's not it's not really oh without its flaws has stood the test of time. I would argue is probably at the very least one of the one hundred, if not best, most important films to ever be made. The tech in it holds up. It's 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 all tech. Yeah. Who calls that all? You know, all <laughs> of the CGI holds up. It's a wonderful film. The problem is, is that Steven is that Steven Spielberg is a very emotional director. That's what that's what he cares about. And this film has a lot of really important ideas especially right now. You know, last I think like one or two weeks ago you talked about the dangers of scientism. It's all about that. Like the like what's yeah. the danger yeah. of science that goes on it's like the it's like this is what you get with almost science when you mix almost science with our I, I hate to like say that it's, you know, the fault of capitalism, so I don't think that's really it. Is like when you mix them up, is like so okay, like man, like mankind, because because of original sin, we are greedy bastards, and you're never going to change that unless you like have um virtue and sainthood. And this film brings up the issue of like as the science continues to progress, what's going to happen? Like this is dangerous. And the problem is it being under someone like Spielberg is it's too it's too into the awe and the uh so like the awe and the shock, 
and it has yeah. it like has these little um like, it has some like big ideas and it has one of some of the famous like actually I would say when she, you know that um that like one scene when you have like Ellie and the old guy and they're I'm um, talking at a table. Yeah. That's one of the most um, famous scenes in um, film history for how, you know, he positions the drama that is going on. But I want to see this film under someone I'm like David Fincher, who is cold, who's calculating, who will um, wrestle with really, really dark things. Because it this is a film that this is a script that has a lot to say. And I think it gets almost lost under, under Spielberg's emotionalism. Do you think the emotionalism is there strictly to keep it popular, uh, the popular appeal. Meaning, if you don't have emotions, if you make it too heady or too this or that, you're going to lose the masses. You're going to lose the kids. You're going to lose the middle schoolers and high schoolers mm -hmm. who can, yeah. you know, maybe some middle schoolers can still get excited about dinosaurs. Um, you're going to lose Dino the type DNA. of money required for, what did you call it? The, the tech of the movie, yeah. right? The CGI, yeah. the live act. You know the whole deal. So, w w is is that is that why you think he went like that, or that's just how he filmed? Well, I think it's how he films, but I also think it's. I mean, this is so Spielberg bought the rights to the film before the book had even been released. Mm. So, because the book comes out like not too far ahead of, uh, I think it comes out maybe like three years before the movie or something. Because the movie comes out in like ninety two, I think, right. And then the book's released in 89 or something, I, I think. And so I, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's a bit of it's a bit of both. That because Spielberg bought the rights to the book, it has that tone to it. But I also think that those were the kind of movies that were popular at that time, which is why Spielberg was able to have the money to do that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even if you, I'm so like, what does he make right after that? He make, like he makes like Schindler's List, which is a phenomenal movie. One of, the, I mean, more definitely more important film than Jurassic Park, but it's still emotional. It's 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 just a cold and hard and gut wrenching. Yeah. I, I I think that's like a good way. To, I mean, that's a really important and good movie that's about the Holocaust and and an experience of that. Same thing with like Saving I'm a Private Ryan. It's a way to experience the emotions of war, which is a horrific thing. And he does a really good job with that. It's just that's kind of his MO. And I don't he doesn't really um, wrestle with big ideas he wrestles with his films have um, big ideas but he wrestles with the big emotions behind behind the ideas interesting interesting yeah and i i just think i think it might be better i think cuz the one thing that's kind of on the missing is like that is that intellectual heft and it's there but it's not um, nearly as important as the you know all on the the um uh, gosh, what's the word? The uh, spectacle of the film. And if you could combine those two things, I think you have a phenomenal movie. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. Start was that good my... or, or did I um, did I um, let you down? No, no, one? it was good. It was good. I liked, I liked your approach. I thought you were going to be like Tarantino should have done it. It should have been Tarantino across the board. He should have made Jurassic well, Park Well, no, but two. I mean, but that's what's, that's also kind of what is missing from those films is that there's no style. I mean, besides the first one, because yeah. it's a Spielberg movie, and that's his style, right? Is those like heavy emotional yeah. films. 
Uh, I mean, E.T. for crying out loud. I can't tell you um, what it's about for the most part. I can tell you, like, what it feels like, though. Um, I can't tell you all the times I cried, damn it. And, but uh, I, I think I think a Tarantino one, I, 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 I don't know. I, don't, I think I would want to see probably, I would like it. I'm David Fincher because he's just so dark and he deals with really, really dark things. Um, maybe Christopher, um, maybe Christopher Nolan, definitely not James Cameron because James Cameron sucks. He does. He does. All right. I'm going to flip the script, Luke. Instead of doing three or instead of doing two, I'm going to do the three. All right. Okay. You ready? All right. So here is my third topic. Start your timers. But now, um, missed opportunities from parents who are not and cannot be perfect. Now we all know. Like Luke said earlier, because of original sin, none of us are perfect. None of us, including our parents. And I love my parents. My kids were just hanging out with my parents, taking Christmas light tours and all this stuff today. Me and Shannon had an evening alone, and it was awesome. And we watched a violent movie. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think what movie did we watch. Oh, we watched Fat Man Do you with ever Mel watch, Gibson. Is, is that good? Uh, it, it's it's dark funny. Okay, I like that makes it. Sense. I actually like that. I'm probably gonna watch it again before our little our little rental fee goes away from the iTunes. But um, I'll say this: I um I'm, I was reading The Republic by Plato, and a lot of it is about fatherhood and parenting that you wouldn't think would be in this treatise on political philosophy. Book eight is all about that, and. They were talking about at one point training up young kids and, and what's suitable to their age. And they talked a lot about the the gymnasium, right? The gymnasium. And the training of one's body, the training of one's uh of music into music and into storytelling and the great poetry, and all that is lyrical about life. And I started thinking about my upbringing with my parents and how I am I'm the black sheep of the family in that. Uh, I am not at all like my brothers. My two brothers are much similar, much more similar to each other than they are to me. Um, the thing that I'm that prevents me from being like the ostracized black sheep is I'm the religious one, and both of my parents are very religious. Um, so that kind of changes things. But the interesting dynamic was from from the beginning. I was not a. I loved playing sports, but I was not an athlete. And I had no interest in athletics other than I'm a kid who wants to play and I, you know, and have fun and all that stuff. I was never hyper competitive when it came to that stuff. And I had friends that were, and it was a totally different mindset. And I actually, all my friends who were hyper competitive, I hated their parents. I couldn't stand them. But there was, my dad said, you will play sports every year of your life unless you really don't want to. But you're never allowed to quit in the middle of a season. You're never allowed to say, I just don't want to do this anymore. You have to be like, every year, Ask yourself, do I really want to do this? Or I want to do a different sport? And we'll do, you know. So they tried to make sure that I was doing a bunch of different stuff. So they said the same thing to all my brothers, right? You're doing a bunch of different stuff. You're being active here and there. If this isn't your thing, we'll find another thing. But it's funny how in the 80s and 90s, there emerged in my life something that my parents couldn't control, which was I was a nerd. But I became the worst of all nerds. I was a wannabe nerd. And I did not have, other than a vague, like, yeah, you should read more. My parents really didn't get into reading until I was in near high school. Um, the idea of, like, computers and technology. My dad bought a computer from a guy, you know, monochrome monitor back in the day, a speaker built into the, built into the hardware that made mm -hmm. little, mm -hmm. you know, kind of stuff. 
Um, but I didn't have a wave of encouragement. And I contrast that with my kids where, like, they have no option. You are going to read all the time. You are going to love reading. You, we will read whatever the heck books you want. I will buy trillions of them as long as you get into the habit of reading. And let's see where it goes. Let's see what interests you. You know, you have to do gymnastics. All my kids. I want you to learn how to walk and hold your head up and have good posture and have strength and, you know, all this stuff. But if you want to go and do something else. But this is like the foundation for a broad range of stuff. And I see how different aspects of their lives come out because I'm because I'm encouraging a wider range of stuff. And for me, I reflect on my own life and how my nerdism went underground. Mm. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just, you know, you know, you you didn't have parents who were super musical, but that musical thing became very big for you. The nerdiness was suppressed for me. Did you did you do these suppressing or did your parents do it? Uh me and the culture. Not my parents at all. At okay. all. Yeah, my parents. I mean, they bought computers for me. They did the thing, but it was like that extra push of like, "Hey, you should take yeah. a computer class yeah. at school." Hey, you should do the coding thing. Hey, let's look for an opportunity. You know, like that stuff. I was too. My family was too sports. My, you know, and and in the nineties, right? The jock, right? That was still a archetype that owned a lot of the popularity. Well, at that point in time, people are still very. Um monolithic and like you're a jock or you're a nerd and like all the dudes in the that were in the in the small group that i ran like a a couple a couple years ago they were all super into star wars like super super (laughs) super they're all like the cool athletes yeah and there was no um i mean i think everyone our age likes liked star wars like i think Everyone but it's different did. when it's a cult. It's like Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. It's different when it becomes a cult. But it's but it's like I think right now kids can be – they can be cultish about a much broader, diverse yeah. group of things than yeah. they've ever been able to be before. And geeking out is no longer a pejorative. No. You know, geek, yeah. all that stuff. It's like, oh, man, I was geeking out on – you can geek out on anything. Uh, makeup tutorials. You know, woodworking. Yeah. You can geek out on anything. It's no longer because the the access is so broad. But I just think about that, and it's so hard to act as a as a parent because it is. You it want is. your kid to be both well rounded and to find their strengths, their personality, and what suits them. You want them to do, and you want to have faith that kind of undergirds it all. And it's so hard to navigate. And um, so it's just our own. You know, we. I'm going to miss opportunities. My parents missed opportunities. Their parents missed opportunities. So. Um, uh yeah. yeah. So I I don't know. I just found that to be an interesting topic. No, I I, I that's actually a really good point. Like I um I'm going to go l- but, l- let's go a little bit uh-oh. longer on this one okay cuz I, I think okay. that oh, this is good. Um with Everly, I've talked about this with Aaron. I want her to at least be doing one thing every season. So yeah. like, you know, um fall, a winter and spring. I would prefer that she, you know, it, it it can be. I would like my dream thing for her is that you know she plays a fall sport. She's you know in the band in the winter time or something, and then she's in yeah. the theater group in the spring. Which, by the way, I've gotten real in the like real in like musicals recently, uh-huh. and so I've started to watch certain things on YouTube. And I'm like, oh my gosh, theater geeks, shut the f up. Like the, abs- <laughs> the absolute worst. 
Like they're worse than podcasters. Um, they Luke, they are the podcasters. <laughs> yes, we're like the rejected theater gigs. I try. I wanted to try out for Macbeth, and I was shunned out. Um, I can't imagine why. Yeah, go on. But it, and so I, I and I. It's kind of funny because like I like that idea of like wanting to encourage them to do stuff, and like here's where we're gonna start. But I want to be a rule, like hey, you've got to do something. So that can be. Um, you know, and I want to make I that can be, um, you know, pl- again playing a sport. It can be being involved in like a club at school. It could be like at least every season you have you have to have a season for something. Is that bad? No, no, I think that's important. In every season, turn, turn, turn. There is a reason. Turn, turn, turn. turn, turn. turn. All right, Luke. Luke, the reason why I like this is. When I think of you, I think of the first two words of question three. I know everyone does. I have no identity. So there's kind of a Christian rock renaissance going on right now with bands from the late 90s and the early aughts, and it's incredible. So you have this thing where bands kind of get back together after, and they get back together, and it's fun. They 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 play all the hits. And they play. There's money the new to stuff. be made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they play, but like, I mean, like these are more. You're like, yeah. I mean, I guess they're doing it kind of for the money, but they're more like independent. It, it would be like us if you know, like, we, if we were to stop and then do a live podcast again ten years later, we'd make like a bit of money, but not a ton, but enough to where it's like, hey, this was fun, and we were able to make some money. I don't know if the quality would really be there. And that tends to be what happens is, you know, they will have their hits. They try to play some stuff that is new. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, thank you. There's this thing happening with, like, real Christian rock bands from the late 90s, early aughts. They're getting back together. They're putting out music. And it's really good. Like, legit, some, like, like really, really, really good. I think what's so... I'm fascinating about this, and I forgot to start my timer. Uh, did you? Three minutes and 45 seconds. Okay. So what's so interesting about this, so around, so it's actually kind of funny because I'm actually became on buddies with the guy who was in this band. Around, um, around um, 19, um, 98, you had a band came out um, called like Sonic Flood, and they had a praise and worship album. And then all the, and this was already like in the waters. It was, it was already kind of happening. But then Christian music, this was like this was kind of the linchpin moment, if you will. All of a sudden, just became praise and worship stuff. Yeah, that was you that you really heard on things like um, that you would hear on, on the radio. That was like popular. So now that's pretty much all that it is in terms of your what people think of in terms of like um, your basic Christian music. And what happened was you don't really have as many of these um, of like these Christian rock bands that came along every five years who would sing for the most part, or they came from a place of faith playing at the Christian shows and, and, and stuff, but they would, you know, they really weren't doing on praise and worship stuff. It was just kind of their point of view, if you will, was, was that, and they played a variety of genres and that pretty much stops around 2005 or so. It's still kind of there, but almost every band after that is playing praise and worship type stuff if they're in the Christian rock arena. Right, right, right. And what you had then are these bands now from the 90s, from the, from the like 
all the late 90s aughts who are not that, who are then coming out with stuff. And I'm like, because like this was like the golden era. I think it's right before bands, I'm like, Under Oath got big. It was the group before that. So this is your I'm a Five Run Frenzy, have Slick Shoes, have Beloved, uh, other bands like that are making, like, they're coming out with stuff and it's, and like, it's really, really good. And I'm kind of glad this is happening because it's, uh, it's just fun to hear great music again that's done in this kind of style, not in terms of the genre, but that point of view of their songs. And I never thought it was going to happen again. And I especially didn't think it was going to happen from these bands. And it's been fantastic. That's interesting. So it's literally the guys from 20 years ago mm-hmm. saving Christian rock. Yeah, honestly. It's, and it's, it's, it's legit. It's, I actually, um, ha- all I, right, wow, worship, you've dominated the industry <laughs> too many times. Yeah. If I wa- see wow, worship 42, not today, today it's under oath. I, I would say like the kind of the one exception of that is Reliant K. They were one of those bands to kind of like to be, to be influenced by, you know, all of those bands, but you would quite often have 10 to 20 other bands just like them. And for the most part, after like 2005 and so, you kind of have like under oath, but they're in a whole different category. Um, I mean, your bands that are like played on K Love and also, or were sold in the Christian rock stores, all that stuff, or, you know, or or be on the Christian rock on the radio stations. Um, It's, I don't know, it's, 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 it's very, very cool. So that's so interesting. It's where the money is, though. You know, like, well, I mean, but here's the thing not at all. Well, wait, wait, nope. wait. What do you mean by it's where the money? Well, is? like the 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 fad shifted, so all the artists shifted with it. Yeah, yes, yes. In terms yeah. of like to the, the praise and worship stuff, yes. But it's just funny because these bands that are getting back back together now, they're not doing it for the money because there is no money to be made for the most part. It's right. just because they like I'm um, doing it, and I think they probably um, make enough to um, uh, they, they make enough to cover their costs and that's about it oh wow all right i'm gonna skip to number four okay because i think this is gonna be the most controversial thing that i'm, I'm gonna so say so angry no 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 you gotta understand i'm gonna hear you out. how i'm gonna right. how i'm gonna work it okay all right. ready set i'm gonna try to be brief i really am it's gonna be hard <laughs> it's gonna be hard right. okay here we go three two one boop all right timer's going Mandalorian season two just ended subtitle how Disney is destroying our childhood memories. Now here is my thesis. The Walt Disney corporation is amazing at doing two things, producing videos, uh, movies, you know, producing intellectual property that own your childhood and then producing subsequent crappy intellectual property that you're attached to just to milk the consumer for all their money. Have you seen the sequels to lady and the tramp? Have you seen the sequel of frozen? Have you seen the sequels to all the other movies with some notable exceptions? Um, one of the things that Disney does, uh, so well is tap into it's similar to your 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 uh, Jurassic Park thing tap into the emotional center of um of a lot of our you know loves for these heroes and whatnot and how Marvel comes out Marvel's doing amazing Marvel gets acquired by Disney uh Lucasfilm gets acquired by Disney here's the thing that I see with uh and other people are saying this but with the Mandalorian now I got a lot of flack for being like Ugh, Mandalorian <laughs> Because in season one, might as well be called Mandoborian, 
in season one, I felt like, hey, here's the thing that's not important. We're going to do this thing. Hey, here's the thing that's not important. We're going to do this thing. Oh, you're going to do this thing? But wait, over here, you got to do this thing first. There were so many capital S, capital Q side quests that had nothing to do with furthering the plot. All we care about is the child. All we care about is a mysterious Mando. And more than 90% of every individual episode, I would say probably 95%, has nothing to do with them as individual characters. It's just stupid side quests. And that's what I got bored with because I was like, there's no substance. But it's still, and this is the thing, it's the most Star Wars thing that has come out since the sequel, since Disney took over. I mean, Solo is crap. Rogue One was fun, but it meaningless. Greg Iwinski destroyed my love for Rogue One when he said, name, name three characters' names that you care about. And I'm like, oh, I can't. Like, Jin? Jen? Jin? Oh, I don't know. The guy so who's one with the Force? A- <laughs> the Force is with me. What's his name? I don't know, but I like the characters. Yes, you <laughs> like them, but they don't mean anything, right? They were interesting premises. Yeah, yeah, that were undeveloped. Um, And so the whole thing throughout Mandalorian 2, I've watched every episode. I love it. I watched all of Mandalorian season one in in, uh, maybe two sittings when my kids were out of town. Um, And so (laughs) I did all that so I could be like, all right, all right, maybe I'm missing something. And it's fun. It is fun. But it's also the most Star Wars-y thing when you have – like, you have the Emperor, but it was stupid in The Rise of Skywalker. The whole Emperor, the whole, everything felt so stupid, mm-hmm. dumb, and fake. And a, and especially the second movie felt like, you know, Kathleen Kennedy, the Force is female. It felt like, uh, you know, subverting expectations. Crap. I couldn't, I couldn't stomach it at all after I watched it. And I've never rewatched it. I tried to. It was painful. Um so here's the Mandalorian season two. Everyone like nerdgasmed throughout this season because there were episodes that brought in specific characters that I loved. Number one, Rosario Dawson freaking killed it as Ahsoka. She was incredible. Wonderful. The makeup, the artistry, uh, the choreography, the fight scenes, they were great. Um, and then you have obviously spoilers, dude. The guy that comes in with one glove, a green lightsaber, and a big black cloak. That got spoiled for me on, on Twitter, and I will never on forgive Twitter. Twitter. I was so <laughs> – I I feel like I was robbed of being able to um, – see, I'm so mad about that. But, that's all but here's the deal. It took till five episodes till we got Ahsoka. It was number four or five. Before the actual shows had any meaning. There, every episode is a side quest. And I understand this is episodic content. It's campy. It's a little this and it's a little that. But here's the deal. And this is where my – this is where, like, a couple of reviews started resonating with me. Like, I enjoyed the season two of Mandalorian way more than I did season one. But I'll say this. The side quest side of things is – I think it's lazy writing. When I'm reading, I just finished my favorite uh, uh, sci-fi series. The new book came out four days ago. I'm done with it. It's about 1,000 pages, Expeditionary Force. Each novel, if you could shrink it down to an – is like an episode, right? But what they do is all of the things that happen in an episode – yeah, there's tons of little stuff that don't matter. But the big things – Always like Harry Potter. It always comes back in the end. Or it always comes up in another novel. Or do you remember that? That thing actually mattered. That side quest wasn't a side quest. It actually was integral to the plot uh, plot of a book, uh, you know, two things later. And you're not uh, finding it. Instead, what you find is Disney is setting up its properties for the Boba Fett adventures, for the Kara Rangers, 
for the Ahsoka, you know, adventures. They're setting up, and they just come in, they do their thing, they wave their hand, they disappear, and you're like, I still like it, but I feel like Disney's manipulating my attachment to my childhood memories. Same thing with uh, Indiana Jones number four. I love this character, so I'm going to yank it out of context, and it's a payoff that it doesn't deserve. Okay, can I add a couple things to this? Just yes, a few of, of my course. thoughts. We'll, I'm okay going along on this one. <laughs> I'm with you in the sense that the one thing that I kind of don't like about it is it does feel like this is the starting point for all these other uh, IPs. So let's bring them all in here, and then we will send them all out after this, you know. So mm-hmm. this is your point of reference now for you have you have the Ahsoka show, you've got the, the Boba yeah. Fett show, which that last thing looked awesome. So whatever, <laughs> like, but I'm with you that I I don't like. You I mean Boba Fett with dad bod? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know it's a little. I'm like That's the not- armor still fits. It still fits. I swear. It's a bit tight. <laughs> um, it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it I, used to be a it used to protect my whole my whole torso now it's just kind of in the middle of my chest i had the exact same thought i'm like <laughs> like you're just kind of wearing it now um, <laughs> not really doing much then it's probably gonna hurt you uh no but uh <laughs> it's slowing you down old man <laughs> um i do not agree that the side quests are pointless because i don't it's not I, – I, you are right in the sense that do the plot points of those films – do they directly influence the plot points of those films? Sorry. Do the plot points of those episodes directly influence the plot point – oh, shit. Oh, that could have been bad. The um, plot points of of things towards the end of the season. Kind of, but like they're not essential. But that doesn't matter because it is because because it's episodic. What's fun is seeing those characters spend time together doing fun things. And so, uh, you mean a man man carries baby for yeah, like ninety nine percent of yeah, it and then yeah. baby holds up hand for one percent. Hell yeah. Like I, I, I will, ch- I cherish everything we got. I love the baby Yoda um, character because I think it's it's cute, it's fun, and it's there's an emotional heft that has been a missing from Star Wars for the most part. It's there in yeah. certain things since. Let's go with um, when George Lucas redid all the whole, all, old films. You know, it, it kind of where it's become more about the spectacle. And the plot points are just like you know this is the problem with the last season with on um, the season eight of with season eight of game of of um game of uh, game of like Thrones is you're just seeing the it's like you're seeing quick on oh, Wikipedia entries like then this happened then this and this and this and there's no yeah. sort of like um the, there's there's actually a uh, really good Catholic stuff episode. Uh, from the other week, called a theology of Dis- a theology of disclosure, that uh, I think kind of ties in with all this. The I'm going to do my best to explain this very very brief. The idea that we have this content that we're trying to that we've been trying to get into, you know everyone's head, but not but not the but not the 
pick not the experience of it and so it's not really the whole thing so even though it's all the right um points it's all the right stuff that we are that we might be hearing we don't have the we don't have the experience of it so it comes so it comes up empty that's not really um what it's about but that's like one piece of what they um, talked about. I feel like Star Wars and a lot of other things have been that because it's just been like and now and now he's like now he's like Darth Vader and now the Empire's back and now um, Palpatine is actually dead. Like it, it's not there's no emotional weight to it and what I like about The Mandalorian is you have two seasons where you build up a like a, you build up a relationship to the point where, okay, huge, like, huge alert, um, huge spoiler alert here. When Luke comes back, it's awesome, and it's powerful, and it's really cool. But what's more powerful is when you have um, Baby Yoda having to say goodbye to, you know, the, to the Mandalorian. Like, and it's because you have those, like, um, one-off episodes where they do dumb stuff, but you enjoy those characters being together, doing things, and that's what yeah, creates okay. that in, that, like, that's the point of the show, is just, it, it's fun right. to be with these characters. Sorry. My, dumb. okay, so now this is 25-minute topic. <laughs> I'm just I know, saying. I know, I know. I'm just saying. I'm okay with this what one. they did to you. That's my argument. My argument is... The it's lazy writing. I don't think because it's lazy. they're building a connection between you and Baby Yoda, which is what we've called him. No, it's for actually almost two seasons. It's really hard to and do that. It's I don't the think armor. It's I know. I agree. I agree. I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying that's what I'm agreeing with. That's what the sequels lack. That's what you know. You're talking but about you're saying draining the emotional. It's impact lazy writing, though. What I'm saying is. They all they have is the emotional weight of these characters, and they don't act. There's no there there. And when you start to pull back the veil on, like, you don't have to have everything as interwoven as a Harry Potter novel. And I'll say this, and I'm coming at this from the perspective principally of a science fiction and fantasy, uh, you know, genre lover. What you described is the constant problem of science fiction and fantasy. Were you talking about with season eight, the Wikipedia style, and then this happens and then this happens? Um, the the getting rid of the emotional attachment and just letting the spectacle serve as everything. I can't tell you. And I think I even said this. I read um, a series. I read about 20 books in this series, and they were smaller books. Uh, and they were, they were punchy. They were not well written. They were actually kind of stupid. But I, I was like, why have I read so many of these in place of my time? It's because it was the spectacle, i.e., in this case, it was the technology side of it. And I loved the guy's the, – really, the plot was, hey, what's the next thing the author is going to invent in this universe that's cool and new and different? I didn't – and there was one character that you kind of care about that you had somewhat of an emotional attachment to, the only normal character in his stories – but then other than that, like I was like, oh, the only thing that keeps me turning the page, it was like what they say about the Da Vinci Code. You don't actually care about the characters. You only care about the true character, which is this narrative plot thing and how it's a page turner. And I started looking at the Mandalorian. And I'm like, I like the Mandalorian. I, when Luke came out on the scene, I was hooting and hollering, and I told my kids to shut up and let me listen. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Daddy Daddy's having this. a moment. Daddy's having a moment. I and then Luke, the way that they wrote him, like there's just fear, right? Here is the most advanced robot warriors we've had beating even the prequels, right? All their robot droid army stuff. And he just mows them down. 
and then just puts his hand out with his deep fake face and says, you know, come with me. I thought I, I loved all that. And because I love the Star Wars lore, I'm bought in. I'm emotionally invested. I'm ready to rock and roll. I'm cheering him on. I love I watched all the Star Wars Rebels cartoons. Right? I read the Star Wars Rebels novel. <laughs> right. I'm into Ahsoka. I love the Ahsoka character. She is the most interesting Jedi since Luke Skywalker in the entire Star Wars universe, including the prequels of Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon Jinn and all the other things that I've read. Ahsoka is the most interesting because she never actually becomes a Jedi, right? And so it's just so fascinating stuff. But I keep feeling like like I wish someone made this comment, Luke showing up should have been a season five epic reveal. But it was put in there because... There's a corporate springboard in this season, and that's why it ha- – and everyone's going to freaking love Luke taking off his cloak. All right. Next topic, baby. Oh, I have more thoughts, but that's hey, fine. We that's can fine. disagree. Who cares? We can disagree. Yeah, We're no, just going to no. spin round well, I just want to add this. I actually – No. No? Okay, fine. Fine. Done. 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 No. All right. Let's be true. Okay. I can't wait for your next topic. I think it's cool. Four. Have you? Okay. I don't get the first half, but I get the second half of your comments, so I'm excited. So, Gilmore, if I were to say the words I'm afraid to do to you, rhyme not intended, what does that mean? I have I literally have no idea. I was like, Freddie Adu, is that like some is that the lead singer of Slick Shoes? Okay. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> let me back up. I used to be uh, I was very mad when I found out that the lead singer of that band was our age. He was like <laughs> fourteen when their first album came Freddie out. Freddie Adu is a s- American soccer player who plays as an attacking midfielder for the Swedish Division One club, Easterlin FF. All right. Okay, so I'm at, I am at the five-minute mark. So this is called I'm a Freddie Adu and American Exceptionalism. I've been listening to this great podcast. It's, it's not great, but it's pretty good. Uh, and it's like all, it's all like Freddie Adu by, uh, by um, this one like writer named Grant Wall. And so way back in 2014, this kid at the age of like 14 was signed um, by DC United in MLS. And he was hailed as the next, um, he was like the American guy that was going to make almost soccer the sport like the sport in this country. He was signed by Nike at the age of 14. And like the head of Nike said, what he'll do for American soccer will be bigger than what Michael Jordan's done for like done for basketball. High hopes. This guy was hyped 14 signed to a team to play with, you know, grown ass men. Um, He was in awe. He was on like Letterman. He was in a commercial with like Pele, who's the greatest um player ever, although yeah. I'm not really, but he but he is viewed as that. Um, before he ever played a professional game in in you know in in his life, and he was so hyped, he made you know half a million dollars every like every like year, and his career didn't really go anywhere. And I think it's so interesting, like what this says about like like why do, why why in the world. Like try to okay, try to imagine that in the NBA you would have a fourteen year old kid who would join that league and you know, they would tell this kid who's never played a pro game in his life, Hey, you have to be the face of like, you know, this of this sport and the face of this league 
and you have to make help make this league be one of the most popular um, leagues in the country. Like that would never yeah. happen, right? That's just like absurd. <laughs> right. But that's what MLS did to Freddie Adu at 14. Yikes. And there's this thing within American soccer where we like we it's not like we're so obsessed with being the best here in America. We need to be the best at everything. And it's served us well. And I'm not saying it's a, a you know, I'm not saying that it is a good thing, but I can't say it's an entirely bad thing either because it's that sort of exceptionalism that has really um, allowed us to conquer the frontier. I mean, that like the frontier was insanely dangerous. People walked from Ohio. Sorry. Yeah, no, they walked from the East Coast to Oregon. People walked that like, they, in one of the most dangerous like it's insane how like I mean, dangerous that was, and people would did it because they like there's that's a very American thing to do a thing like that because it's you know that um, American um, gusto that has that has uh, that has you know obviously been used to do horrible things, but it's also been used to do some really great things. And we think about sports. We I mean every sport we have has the one guy that we're like he's the best: Babe Ruth, Michael Jordan. Um, Tom, like Tom, Tom, Tom um, Brady, or you know, Peyton Manning, and we put that on this. I'm a 14 year old kid, and it didn't pan out. And it's like, uh, it, for some reason, within American um, soccer, we're obsessed with this idea. Is always is we are one guy away from being the one of the best countries in the world at soccer, even though only seven countries have ever won a World Cup. Really? Yes, that's it. Only seven countries, yep. the same seven over and over again. Man, that's the Pareto curve, right? You got a hundred teams, but only ten will rise to the top, or less than ten. Well, it's wow. it's, it's also once every four years, so th- there's that. Mm. But yeah, mm. no, really, I mean, it's because it was. I'm a France won the last one, and they won in 1998. It's, I mean, it's insanely for us to get to the finals of a World Cup. You would need at least two a miracle on ice moments. <laughs> And think about how we haven't had a moment like that in 40 yeah. years. In four, and we would need two of them for us to, um, to like, oh gosh, I, would it be two? Just to get in it, I think we would need two of those. Just to get in the <laughs> final. So t- to, like, win the whole thing, we need to have, we would need to have three of those. And we've had one in 40 years. That's so funny that you say that because... For me, soccer is, I mean, it's interesting, but it's so boring. Oh, you're so wrong. <laughs> it's so boring because there's not a lot of minute action moment to moment, right? It's not basketball. It's not football. When I watch soccer, it's so difficult for me to be like, look at the strategy of these guys passing. And I'm like, who cares about passing? Someone punch someone or score a goal. Right, and when I found out that often people games are one to two, and you know sometimes they tie, and I'm like, oh god, I hate this thing. Now I even played soccer for years. I I loved it because when you're a little kid, there's always action happening, and people are scoring twenty goals in a game. But I could never get into it. But when you get into it, or what would it take to get someone like me into it? You have, well, one, you got to have Ted Lasso, and number two. You have to have the miracle. Do you believe? Like I love those, 
Like I watch old hockey stuff. I don't care for hockey, but those those uh, mm-hmm. games that when they'll replay them on ESPN Classics, those are incredible. That's like a part of American history, and so you're waiting for that moment. I agree. What, I think that's interesting. Most people's gateway into soccer was actually 2010 when Landon Donovan scored the goal against Al. Uh, he sort of he scored a goal against Al Sharpton. Nigeria in the 90th minute and they had to win the game t- to move on and he scored a goal and they did and it, like that I I cannot emphasize how euphoric of of a moment that was and that's what I like about Oma soccer is you're right you don't have this like bam 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 but it's like it's the build-up and the build-up and the build-up and the build-up it's it's it is 90 minutes of tension that you know gets released at certain points and times, and that's what's so um, fun about it. Nice. Ask your question. I did. I well, I made what the statement that I need, I need uh, that miracle moment to get me into yeah, it. Yeah. Well, well that's not. why when we missed the 2014 World Cup, sorry, the 2018 World Cup, it was such a big deal because you're denying people yeah. that chance. I mean, it truly set the sport back at least 10 to 20 years. Because you have a whole – people are still pretty pumped about it, but this is why MLS hasn't grown in popularity the way it did from almost 2014 to 2018. Yeah. Mm. 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 All right. Last – I do think it's interesting. I yeah. do think it's interesting. Of course it is. It's <sighs> U.S. Um, soccer. It's great. Well, let me ask you this, Luke. Have We took about 20 minutes on the Mandalorian comments. Mm-hmm. And and we did kind of a bunch on the missed opportunities with parents and stuff. Uh, should should I only stay at three, or should I do the fourth? I, would, I mean, if you've if you've got a fourth, go ahead and do it. <sighs> we can keep it short. If if you don't, it's fine. Well, I had a thing, and I just don't think the thing fits in our fun back and forth kind of thing. Why? Because it's but about I, um, <laughs> well, no, it's so about let me rephrase. No, it's it. about whatever the f we want. You want to talk true. about Thomism? Talk about <laughs> Thomism. <laughs> At first, I wrote that because I thought it would be funny and it would tick you off, but then I was like, Nah, I kind of like. I'm not so I just wrote people. I just wrote. I just no 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 no. I'm just meaning like that's when Michael Gorman goes full teacher mode, but um, and I can't help it. I'm opposed to what um, the Thomas do with Thomism. No, I, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> it's a self-referential loop. It's a self-referential loop. Um, no. So one of the things that I've been doing lately, let me connect it between classics and and Thomism and just my own. Um, like the September challenge that we did and stuff is I have been trying to read really, really, really difficult stuff lately for my own brain that still makes sense in my own life. And that was for me, um, the, the extra works of Alistair McIntyre that I previously had never tackled. And I'm going through a book called whose justice, which rationality. And the guy is laying out a case that you cannot understand the virtue of justice uh, by any philosopher or political scientist or whatever, until you primarily understand their un- their you grasp their understanding of practical rationality. How do individual human beings reason about what they ought to do in a given society? And when part of the thing, so the the thing that's so awesome about Alistair McIntyre is he's uh, an Hegelian, and and Hegel was big hey, into history. Real, real quick, how yeah. mad does it make you that I get to study at the school that, you know, he's a teacher at before you do. 
Seven okay, out of five. Cool. Cool. Seven out of Sweet. five. Just just um, wanted to <laughs> bring that up. Go on. Yeah. Just wanted to open that wound. Um, but when I think about this stuff, the way that he brings it up hits such a chord with me, and I think you would love it too, Luke, because Alistair McIntyre doesn't teach doctrines in philosophy. He teaches the history of doctrines and how they developed and why they work and why they don't work and how traditions around inquiry becomes a, a, a new thing. How it becomes, like, what do we mean when we say a school of thought or Thomism or the Judeo-Christian whatever, which is a kind of a term he mocks because that is such a broad and almost meaningless thing. Well, what we mean is something that touches on biblical revelation. But the the whole like flow of what he did, he said this, and I thought this was so fascinating. So I'm kind of doing the audible books of the Greek classics because that's how they were done in ancient Greece. They were proclaimed. Most people couldn't read. You had um, the rhapsods who were speaking out loud. So I did the Iliad. I did the Odyssey. I did um, Virgil's Aeneas. But then I went back and um, spent some more time with the Greek tragedy uh, authors, right? So you have Sophocles and and what? I love Sophocles, and I'm going through the Oedipus stuff. But here was the interesting thing that really hit me. As I'm reading his work of philosophy, he makes this comment. He said, "In ancient Greece, there came to be within the tragedians these conflicts of good, and they had no ability to resolve it. There were conflicting notions of justice. The ancient, more ancient view, which justice was um, do what is right." regardless of the consequences because zeus loves justice hmm. another version was do good to your friends and do uh, uh evil to your enemies and that's justice and what he pointed out that i thought was so fascinating was he said the tragedians developed um almost full philosophical points but because they didn't develop the actual science approach methodology of philosophy they couldn't answer the question so you come to these deus uh, ex machina events where a god shows up and resolves the situation in some crazy way and then disappears again. And they don't actually resolve the conflict of goods. And he talks about how Plato invented it and then – or you know, through Socrates or whatever. But the idea of what he was doing in like the Republic was the names of the characters are actually historical Greek names as well as some of his friends who argued – arguments to the contrary and how plato was wrestling with these arguments but it was all like so he can't just say this is what justice is he has to say what does it mean to reason what would it look like in an actual city what would an ideal city look like and he goes through all this stuff and it blows my freaking mind that here i am thinking like the plays they're just stupid greek tragedies or they're interesting great literature works but I'm doing real stuff. I'm, I'm in philosophy. And then I start to read those poetic works, and I don't realize how much powerful philosophy is contained in there. And it isn't. And, and then I look mm-hmm. at Aquinas, who's synthesizing Aristotle with Augustine, and you realize, like, holy crap, there is so much here that is filled with culture and light and literature, and he's mastered the ancients as well as his, you know, the church fathers and all this stuff that it, it ties it together in this crazy way. So right now in the book, I'm on the part of Aquinas' synthesis. Um, but walking through the ancient Greek stuff, it, it, it truly made me love the gospel uh, ten times more. Ten times more than I ever have. Because you see what people left to become Christians. And it, it was incredible. Do you see how could any of that help us in our like post-Christian culture? 
Oh, 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 love you. The line that has stood out. I literally just heard you get an erection. (laughs) (laughs) That's a verbal one. That's like like what your erections sound like verbally. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What you said... Uh, was what was a line in the book where he said, uh, Alistair McIntyre was commenting on the Republic, and he said, no one who engages in politics today can start without, or can can do so without having read the Republic. And I'm like, you know what? I've never mm. read the Republic. I've read tons of excerpts. Mm-hmm. I've never sat down and read it. I'm talking to my buddy Brian Jones, interview with the Peeping Thomas, and, uh, that we did, and we're talking in, at work one day, and he said, you know, book eight is all about, like, fathers and sons, and it's fascinating. This one guy, Joshua Mitchell, really breaks open that book for me and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait, what? And so I go through and I listen to the whole thing, and I'm telling you, when I was in chapter one and two, no, 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 just chapter eight when he talks about the democratic man and the tyrannical man, because he believes ty- uh, democracies are one step away from tyrannies, um, and not kingdoms, which is fascinating to me. But he said, Ooh, that's um, he's, yeah, and so he thought, and I think it's so fascinating, it's so weird, but it's, it's really cool how he does it. But there's this one line where he talks about um, the tyrannical man is one who lets his passions dominate. He's not thinking rationally, he's not a philosopher king, right? Everything just exists for his gratification, whether it's gratification for power or sex or violence or money. And so he talks about the type of citizens that creates. And he said, these are people who go without reason and he said he goes they drink wine all the time and then all of a sudden uh, basically a fad shifts and now they drink water and can't stop giving discourses on the health of water drinking i'm like oh, oh my, my god, god that is me and every youtube thing yeah. i've ever fallen down holy cow i'm like i'm like let's do a carnivore but diet a, let's talk about fire but that's american culture though if you really stop and think about it yeah Yes, and that's the point of today. When you start, when you hear an ancient lay these things out, and they were very much concerned with tyranny. Now, obviously, we kind of think all monarchies are tyrannies and stuff. They didn't, but you start to hear the way he lays it out when he starts talking about the democratic man and the tyrannical man, like the culture that it produces. You start to be like, I now know why Portland was burning. Like fatherless America and all these things and the the radical indulgence of the of the emotional now and real issues of injustice that then become taken up in an adolescent storm of me, 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 now, 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 and all of these other things that come along and just grapple with it and then completely detach and have nothing to do with it six months later, two months later, one month later. I mean, Bernie Sanders advocated for the building of the wall. Things shift. Now it's the most absurd racist thing you could ever say in your life. You know, like you have these things that you like weren't Democrats pro union. Now unions represent middle class white men who don't want to. And you're like, wait, wasn't this all? I think that's one of the reasons why I feel so confused about our moral age is because things that were sacred have shifted so quickly. And I think the the Trump presidency has only accelerated that. But it shifts and it shifts again and then it shifts again and it's just like why why is it shifting like this why aren't the people who are conservative bastions writing about a principled conservatism why are they like demonized today why did yesterday's leftist become today's neocon or really you know 20 you know year 2000s neocon like when did this how did this happen and that's where i think it's so fascinating to see like plato talks about it and you're like oh oh we are setting ourselves up for a tyranny Got it. 
Shit. <laughs> what do I do? I, I think it's totally relevant. Hashtag relevant. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, you know what's funny? Um, so I, ha- I need to smoke a cigarette. Go on. <laughs> oh, wait. Are you serious? No, 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 because you said it was a mental wreck. Anyway. That was going to be so proud. I was like, ooh, without me, how could you? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, so one of my um, topics was how Catholic Stuff You Should Know is currently on a roll. And they're putting out phenomenal content right now that is they're they're hitting on stuff that we have that we have um talked about, but they are they are presenting it in a like I would say even like more um concise, accessible and intellectual uh, um, um, manner that's ultimately like very important and very, very good. Um that's why they're the best. And uh one of the things that they were I'm talking about on that episode that I had mentioned earlier, um, theology of dis theology of disclosure, is like the fallout from modernism and how we're trying to wrestle with that. Because you know, when you really have modernism, man truly becomes a center of you know the universe on like what man can do. And like, like, look at all this stuff. We're gonna. It's it's like we got rid of Christ, and we and we really replaced Christ with man. And then what? Because we still need to fix the world, right? You know, like there's still things are still bad, and that ends with the Holocaust. And then what do you do after that? And I think that's one thing that people have been trying. Like, how often? I mean, you, you would not believe how much. I mean, why does Hitler come up in every argument? On the internet, there's that one thing called the, like, I forget what it's called, but it's where, like, you know, at some point in time, any argument on the on the internet, Hitler will be brought up. And I think part of it is because we don't know, like, how to wrestle with that. And I think that's, like, so much of what we're seeing right now is, like, how to wrestle with, like, the fact that we have no meaning anymore because we destroyed yeah. it at the, you know, end of modernity. And we tried to have half a century where we were, like, post meaning and it's like well that sucks and and so like now we're trying to like okay well what if we just create meaning out of thin air and so we're just trying trying to chase all of these things like okay so if i you know and i'm not saying like i fully believe people want to change the who who feel like they are a different um sex i don't doubt that they feel that like I don't yeah. doubt their experience. Like we've we've talked about this before. How according you know like within, um, like your post Christian ideals, they're following them to their logical conclusions. Like they're doing the right thing by their standards. Because if it's not a baby, well then it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. You know, and I, and I just think I, I like kind of putting that against what you were just um, talking about. That I think is really interesting. I, I wrote something, something Thomism as one of my topics, and I was like, I don't know how to specifically walk into this, but it's so funny because I've had like three or four different conversations about Plato's Republic lately, and I'm going to go back and listen. And everyone, if you're an Audible subscriber, they have a whole bunch of included stuff that they just added. I bet you they were like the lowest selling audiobooks and they just threw it into your subscription to keep you there. I think we but can do I, an audible. We should be able to do an audible ad because you just get approved to do one. We, we can put a link into the show notes because audible is phenomenal. Yeah. And I, um, I have uh, uh, all of 
what, what is the next thing that I that I just downloaded? I can't even remember. But um, Plato's Republic, excellent reading. Uh, no problems with it. Listen to it at double speed. It was still clear. It was good. Um, not a Brit who mumbles. Thank you. Half of classics. And then they're like, oh, no, 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 the Zeus. You're like, oh, it doesn't sound smarter because they are British. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It <laughs> Actually, it's because does. they're a certain part, like London, not really even on British. It's just a certain kind of because, like, could you imagine if it was a Scottish person? <laughs> it's, no, the Cockney. Cockney is what we need. Guy, 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 I got that. Harry Potter, Bonnie. Bonnie. All right. Well, I have I've exhausted my topics. McIntyre. I'm creating show notes. I, yeah, I did, I was adding that. Look at that. Look at this. This is like a real podcast episode that we just did. It only took 277. Did we, <gasps> did we just grow up? We may have just grown up. Hey, if you guys, if you enjoyed this, please go to Patreon.com, pay like two bucks a month or like you know whatever, and just let us know. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. You, yeah. you can tell us on on Facebook. I, I check that occasionally. Um, so no, this was really fun. I really liked. Uh, I really liked doing this. We would love to get uh, your guys' thoughts. Uh, I think th- I definitely want to make this like a on um, the yearly thing. Whatever the f think, we want on the uh, <laughs> topics. Yeah. So I think it would be fun. Next week we will have our year um, wrap up where we take a look at our themes for the year, and I think this time we're just going to be uh, reminding ourselves what our themes were. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and kind of see what happened, because yeah. woo, how about Yikes. and like Yikes. everyone's talking a... about twenty twenty like it's gonna just somehow somehow magically change next next week when it's twenty twenty one. I'm like, it's not really gonna change. <laughs> Everything's gonna be the same. Yikes! Yikes! All right, thank you very much to our sponsor, BetterHelp dot com slash foxes head on over there good sponsor of the show they're gonna sponsor all of 2021 for the most part so yeah. we're super excited How about that a whole year as we a sponsor sold. and that hey you buy a year's worth of ads we're gonna give you at least three ad reads to cycle <laughs> through <laughs> listen we're gonna have one that's gonna be you know go into like two quarters but it'll be fine it'll be fine it'll be fine uh do we announce the other thing that we just got an email about that should be interesting I, mean, I think so. Sure. We have been invited. Almost Christmas, but. Yeah. I think they got yeah. denied by a few people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We uh, we have been invited by the uh, Seek 21 to be a featured podcast in their virtual event. Yeah. So if you are out there and you want to be a part of Seek and uh, you want yet another avenue to get more Gomer and Luke in your life. Uh, we are we are gonna figure it out and try to make it work for our yeah we'll for be our there. podcast. No, I I I can I'll, I think that um, um work will definitely be okay with me taking the time to do that because I'll talk about Glen Mary. So yeah, we're gonna be yes. a part of Seek. So woo! I think that'll be cool. So head on over yeah, to I'm uh, excited about that. Let me see uh, seek.focus.org and you can find out more about the conference. If you are a young adult college student. You should definitely check it out and see if this is a conference that is for you. A lot of great speakers and stuff um, that'll be there. So it might be us, too. And yeah. uh, maybe we can figure out a way to do a reunion with the Catholic stuff. You yeah, know, guys. that'd be fun. Because that episode was freaking hilarious. That was great. No, yeah. And they, uh, they have brought that up, how they want to try to do something at some point in time. It's usually always at Seek, so that's when they yeah. say it. So, yeah, it, it would be great, man. It would be fun. Woo! All right. Hey. Um... Merry Christmas, man. I love you. 
I love you too. I hope buddy. you guys have a good time. I hope it's a very um, good Christmas for you and Ra- for my favorite dog, Zara. But dog number two, buddy. <laughs> Actually, it's not true. He's like dog number four for me. But still, you know. Buddy is now officially a lap dog. He oh. lays down on my lap. And I'm like, oh, I don't want this. Yeah, you're you're, <laughs> you're going to get attached, man. 